Well, this morning we come to the end of our study in the book of Esther. It was quite a story, but it's not quite finished. And uh, a lot of you know that the relatives uh, of Esther's people, uh, the people in the narrative, uh, had once been enslaved in Egypt. And they were used, and they were abused, and they were brutalized by their adversary there in Egypt. But we know the story. We've seen the movie, right? God brought them out of the land. But it's interesting, as soon as they get out, they step one foot out of Egypt, they're being attacked and brutalized by other people along the route while they're in the desert. And then finally, they make it into the promised land many years later, and there's more people who are ready to attack them and, in fact, do exactly that. So it's constant pressure. It's constant attack. Uh, All along the way, their desire is, you know what, to find rest, to find peace. That's their desire, and God had promised that to them. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 12, and verse 10, it said this. This is, God, this is Moses speaking to the people through God, and he said, But you will cross the Jordan and settle in the land the Lord God is giving you as an inheritance, and he will give you rest from all your enemies around you so that you will live in safety. See, that's all they wanted. They didn't want brass bands. They didn't need to be rich. They just wanted to rest, right? A few chapters later, same book, same author, same audience. It says this. Remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt. When you were weary and worn out, they met you on your journey and attacked all who were lagging behind. They had no fear of God. When the Lord your God gives you rest, same word, from all the enemies around you and the land he is giving you to possess as an inheritance, you shall blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Do not forget. That's going to become important in just a couple of minutes from now. The great desire of the people, the great desire in the heart of Israel was to have rest from their enemies. Now, that word rest, if you look at it in the Hebrew, it means to settle down. It means like, you know, everything's like, and then all of a sudden it starts to settle down. It means to find a quiet place. You know how you can't even find a quiet place during the day? And a lot of times we do find a quiet place and we make it noisy, right? We turn the radio on real loud, we do other stuff. It's like we're just addicted to that kind of stuff. It's like we don't even know what rest is anymore. Uh, that, That word literally means to find relief. Relief from the tumult. Relief from the attacks. Relief from the life as it normally is. The great desire on the heart of the people was to find relief. Now, if I ask you to name me an enemy that you have, people would go, oh, I don't have any enemies. What do you think I am? Uh, That may be true. But some of you, I bet you can name one or maybe even two. Um, And when you think about it, uh, the reason why some of us can name enemies, people that are kind of just, they, that's what they do to us in life. They stir, they make us crazy. Uh, it's because the world, there's something really screwy with the world. There's something really bad with the world. We know that, we understand that. There is constant pressure from people. There's constant criticism. People abuse us. People misuse us. People lie to us. People take us off their friend list and, you know, suddenly they stop replying to our posts. They ignore us. They attack us. They avoid us. They get 
you know, you get wind uh, all of a sudden one day that somebody says, you know, you know, they're just killing you behind your back. See, this is not, this is not unusual. This is what happens in the world in which we live. Now, wouldn't it be nice to find rest from your enemies? Wouldn't it be great to find a place where you are safe and where those who want to attack you can't get to you? A place where you could really experience relief. God promised his people relief as a result of his salvation. So how does he do that? How does he go about that? How does he bring relief? What are we to look for? As a review of our story, let me acknowledge uh, that I know some of you are hunters here, you know, that, that kind of hunters. And uh, I don't get it. I don't get hunting. I never did. I never will. Uh, I've never been a hunter. My son-in-law is a hunter. Uh, I don't understand it. He's from Colorado. That has something to do with it, I'm sure. Uh, but I, to me, it just seemed very unfair, as I've said before. Hunting, it, they call it a sport. The only way it's a sport is if they give guns to the deer and let them go out and hide in the bushes and in the trees. And they, you know, when the, deer, when the hunters come out, you know, uh, they start shooting at them. Then it's a sport, as far as I'm concerned. Anyway, um, through deception and cunning of a single, evil, smart, high-level official in the Persian Empire uh, by the name of Haman, we know his name by now, uh, a sort of hunting season was established in the Persian Empire. It was a short season, very short hunting season, one day to be exact, and the game they were hunting did not have cloven hoof, could not bounce from hill to valley in a single bound. The hunted were the Jews in the Persian Empire, and on the 13th day of the 12th month of the year, hunting season was officially open on the Jews. Not only were the people of the empire encouraged to participate in this, think about it, singularly ghoulish and horrifying sport, but just to spice things up a bit, to get people interested in case they weren't interested. Part of the edict that was sent out, and this is all in review if you've been here for the series, part of the edict uh, that was sent out to every corner of the empire stated that if you killed Abraham Rabinowitz and his family, whoever, whoever they were, uh, that on that day, you could take possession of his house, the business that he had spent most of his life building, and even his moderate, diversified portfolio that he had constructed over a number of years. It was, on that day, all yours. So if you killed a lot of people on that day, the 13th day of the 12th month, see, if you really did a good job, uh, you could be set for life. You and your children and even your children's children. I mean, really, how often does an opportunity like that come along where you could really be set for life? It's like hitting the lottery. Before the undertaker even came to bury their bloodied bodies, if you joined in, you could move into a slightly used, split-level, three-bedroom, two-and-a-half-bath, you know, single-family home overlooking the hills of Susa if you participated. And it all came about because the evil Haman had lied to the king about the people, about the Jews. For instance, he said, again, this is in review, he said that uh, the people scattered throughout, throughout the empire, they didn't obey Persian law. Wrong. Who said, remember, remember the debates? Wrong. That's, they were wrong. Okay? They were wrong. Uh, it wasn't true. He said that they sought to remove themselves from Persian culture. Wrong. 
That wasn't, that wasn't true either. In fact, they, they, it's not so much that they tried to remove themselves from Persian culture. They became so ensconced in Persian culture that they had forgotten their historic faith and, and the laws of God. They, they didn't want to become a nation within a nation. They were fine with the nation around them. So, you know, this charge that, you know, these people are coming in and they really just want to make their own little thing here and their own little, you know, their own little ghetto here, there, and there. That's not true at all. But the king believed it. And Haman told the king that it was the best interest of the king and the empire to do away with these people. But God was about to bring relief to his beleaguered, wandering people. And through an amazing turn of events, which we have chronicled, the hunter became the hunted. And last week we finished off chapter 7, and in chapter 8 it begins, as Doug just read for us, and we see Haman hanging on a pole that he had constructed to hang Mordecai on. If you look outside, you know, the palace just to the east, there he is. He's hanging out there. Everybody could see him. The great enemy of the Jews, who had tried to annihilate them, had himself been put on the same pole prepared for Mordecai. So Esther, so we, we get into chapter 8. Esther's safe. Mordecai's safe. Uh, 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 more than that, the Persian law, which it dictated that if you were a traitor to the royal court, then everything that you owned was transferred to the royal court. They, you know, it came back to the crown, which Haman was such a powerful man, you can imagine that there was a lot of houses and a lot of servants and a lot of land and a lot of money that was involved in that. But in verse 1 of chapter 8, you find uh, Esther says, uh, uh, oh, the king says to Esther, uh, all of this for you, my, my lovely, all of this for you, my, my queen. He knew that everything was coming into the crown. And, you know, I guess he was rich enough, he felt good enough. He, he gave it all to Esther in verse 1. And, 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 you know, it was all hers. Now, maybe in his mind is a way to balance the scales of justice, you know, to give uh, to the victim what formerly belonged to the victimizer. I don't know. But then the king does something else. All of a sudden, Mor Mordecai walks into the palace room. There's, you know, the queen and the king are talking. He walks in, and he looks at Mordecai, and uh, he reaches into his pocket, and he takes out his signet ring. Now, remember what we said about the signet ring? The signet ring uh, displayed or, or had in, in it the, all the authority, all the power of the king. So if you had that signet ring, you could say anything you want pretty much and put the signet ring, you know, put a little, a little wax and put your signet ring on it. And, you know, whatever it was, that was the law. That was the law from that point on. So an amazing amount of power he gives to Mordecai. And then Esther, just to put a bow on the whole thing, because everybody's in a big love fest here. You know, everyone's in there and they're all doing a kumbaya hug. Esther looks at Mordecai and she puts him in charge of everything that the king had just given her. All of Haman's lands, all of Haman's servants, uh, servants, all that kind of thing. And, and so, you know what? You talk about a great reverse, reversal we talked about last week. You talk about, you know what, the guys who was on the bottom of the end, the bottom of the pole all of a sudden being on the top. Man, this is, this is one of those stories, great movie, great movie, because it's a great reversal. And it's all great. It's all good. Everybody's excited. Everybody's into it. Houses, land, servants, more servants. But here's the thing. Getting all that stuff was not why Esther took her life in her hands, remember, and went into the king. And she could have lost her head because she wasn't announced and it wasn't supposed to happen. And she went in there. She didn't go in and say, you know what, could you please give me a couple of Haman's houses? That's not why she did it. Those things are not why she came to the king. She came to the king in the hopes that he might grant her her life, and more importantly, the life of her people. Mostly it was all about her people. It would be like, you know, 
It's kind of like, you know, they got all these good gifts now. It'd be like you going into your boss, you know what, your, your raise is way overdue. It's way overdue. The guy's a big cheapskate, you know it, and he know, you know he has the money. And you go into him, you say, yeah, I'm going in there, and I know exactly what I'm going to say. And, you know, you finally work up the courage. You get in there. 25 minutes later, you walk out with a big smile on your face, and now you have the day off after Christmas. You have permission to use the executive bathroom, and you got a big pat on your back, job well done. And all of a sudden, you smile, and you go, well, wait a minute, that's not why I went in there. I didn't go in for that. I don't care about the executive bathroom. I wanted to get a raise. That's why I went in in the first place. Houses and land was not why Esther took the great risk of coming into the king's presence in the first place. Land, great. Thank you so much. But she wanted to save her people. She needed to save her people. But there was a big problem. There was one really big problem. Remember how we said that once the law was passed, signet ring, wax, signet ring thing, it couldn't be overturned. The law of the Medes and the Persians, you could not overturn. The, the king, with all his power, Xerxes, you know, basically ruling the then known world, you know, that we knew about and writing about in the history books and stuff like that, there was one thing he couldn't do. He couldn't overturn the law of the Medes and the Persians. He could rant, he could rave, he could scream, he could yell. But everybody knew, everybody knew that once delivered, an edict like was delivered to the empire could never be revoked. His hands were tied no matter how much he would even want to comply with what Esther was asking him. So it was coming. The day of Holocaust when all the Jews would be slaughtered was coming. See, and Esther knows this. She gets it. So she falls, basically. You know, she's, she's the, oh, thanks for the house, thanks for the lands, thanks for everything else, but don't you, you don't get it. And she falls at his feet, and in verse 5, she loses it. She's to absolutely destroy it, which ma- makes you see that, you know what, this isn't fake, this isn't phony, this isn't an act. This isn't the calculated thing. Man, we talked about, you know, how calculated Esther was when she came to the, the, ki- uh, the king before. This wasn't calculated. This is one of those spur of the moments, I can't take this anymore, and you just crumble into, you know, an emotional mess. And she says in verse 5, if it pleases the king, and if it regard- and he, re- he regards me with favor and thinks it the right thing to do, and if he is pleased with me, let an order be written overruling the, dispatch- the dispatches of Haman of, uh, of Hamadatha, the Agagite, devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's provinces. For how can I bear to see disaster fall on all my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? Now, you look at this. Now, you look at that, that section right there, right? It's up on the screen. And uh, an hour before this, she was calling him the adversary, Haman. She called him the enemy. She called him this vile Haman. And now she speaks of him as Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. It's a very respectful term. So you're saying, well, maybe she calmed down. Maybe she's looking out the window to the east. She sees the guy hanging. She goes, you know what? I, I kind of feel sorry for him a little bit. I, you know, it's, I didn't like him. He's a bad guy. You know, what, what, what's going on here? You know, may, maybe it's just, it's just, you know, things have changed. Nothing changed. This was no mistake. She did it very purposely. Remember what we had said that when Israel came out of Egypt after the Exodus, they ran into a people called the Amalekites. Remember that? We just read, we just read about it from Deuteronomy. They were the first official enemy of the Jewish people. 
The Amalekites attacked them, and they were, they were so big and they were so brave. They went about it, it was, as we just read in Deuteronomy. As the people got strung out, you know how you, when, when you're in a big, long entourage, and some people get tired, and this one's got you know, five kids, and you've got to wait, and you've got a potty break, you've got to do this, you've got to do that. And so what happens to it? As, okay, originally, they were in the middle of the pack. Now, all of a sudden, they get a little bit further back, a little bit further back, a little bit further back, until they're like straggling behind, and everybody's a mile ahead. Well, the Amalekites, being the brave warriors they are, started killing off everybody in the back. Everybody with the weak, everybody with the sick, everybody with children. They, they started picking off all these people, murdering them right out there and leaving their bodies out in the desert. You can read about it in Exodus 17, Deuteronomy 25, Numbers 24. And as a result, God cursed the Amalekites and he ordered that their memory be blotted out from the face of the earth. Fast forward a few hundred years. The first king, Saul. God sent Saul to wipe out the Amalekites. Remember? Wipe them out because of what they did. And Saul went in there and what did he do? He did a pretty good job, but he saved all the best people. He saved all the best of the cattle and the sheep and everything else, and he saved the king. A man by the name of Agag. I can't, you know, Agag. I don't know what somebody's name Agag. But anyway, Agag. So when you speak of Agagites or you speak of Amalekites, you're speaking of one and the same people. And now, though dead, a direct descendant of the man and the people whom God had said to wipe off the map had come back to haunt God's people. Haman, a direct descendant. That's why she addressed him to remind the king. Listen, disobedience always is a price. When Saul said, you know what, we're going to do most of it, but we're not going to do it all. You know what, you know, I don't know if God realizes these are really valuable sheep. You know, and these people, they even make great servants. I think, you know, we're, we're going to save. So disobedience always has a price. And many times the price is not due in our lifetime. Sometimes we are not the ones to pay the price of our own disobedience in an immediate way. What, one of the truisms of Scripture is this. A man reaps what he sows. He reaps what he sows. If you are one who has never been able to come under the authority of anybody. And you're home, and you have kids, and you have this, and you have that. And they're watching you. They're watching this man or this woman who is always complaining and always cranking. And always, uh, you know, anytime they're put under the authority of somebody, they've never been able to kind of figure that one out. And they're always kicking against it. People see that. Somehow kids pick that up. Uh, children who uh, are... are born into homes where there is alcoholism, drug dependency, the children of divorce. Do you know that the guilt and the anger and the anxiety and the embarrassment and the relational problems that many children experience, experience it because they've come from homes like that. See, they are experiencing the fallout from the sins of the parents. See, that's what we're experiencing in our culture now. See what's going on in our culture? Okay, this is from the sins of the parents. Um, we live in a culture, in, in recent days, more than ever in my lifetime, is chiefly concerned with this. What's going to make me happy? Even Christians, God wants me happy. First thing God wants, obviously God wants me to be happy. That's, that's his chief concern, on, you know, in the universe. People say, you know, what do I want? You know what, I've served other people. Now it's my time. 
See, this is the culture in which we live in now. And we end up bowing down to idols that promise everything that we so desperately seek after. And we tell ourselves lies like, you know what? Uh, the kids will be okay. I have strong kids. No, you don't. I'll tell you what you do. You have sinful kids, like my kids, like me, like you. Uh, those are the kind of kids we have. Kids who are sinful and kids who are struggling. And when I am disobedient to the express words of God... We push them deeper into trouble. God made us, and he knows what makes us thrive, and he knows what destroys us, and he knows the things that he wants to do in our lives, and the Bible says he has good plans, but, and he doesn't have plans to destroy us, but sometimes it is as if we are deliberately trying to push the limits of grace. You know what we're trying to do? It's like this. Let me know how far I can go following down my own path, and just before I fall off the cliff, let me know, and I'll come back a half inch. Okay? It's almost like we're doing that in our culture. But i got to tell you something. If there's one thing I know about the God of the Scripture, he's a God of grace and he's a God of renewal. And there are numerous exits along the road to turn off and go back and get back on the right road, on God's road. There are. God was giving Esther and Mordecai a chance to right a wrong by their first king that had disastrous consequences for the people of their own day. It was a U-turn. Make it right. Sometimes it's not even your fault. You know what? You're left with the ashes of someone who just decided to burn it all down. You know what? They got ticked off one day, and they decided to burn their life and everybody around them's lives down. And I need to tell you this, that we do have a God who is just. We do have a God that is gracious. We do have a God that is forgiving, and we do have a God that is loving. Now, if you want to break that down, you want to get a ratio, you want to get percentages, you know, if we had a mathematician, we'd probably get some mathematicians here. And I'm sure if I sent them through all Scripture, they could probably come up with a percentage of all those things and how many times those things are mentioned. What is the ratio of a God who lets calamity have its way and a God who, when we pray and seek Him and ask that my sins be forgiven and for them to not have an awful effect on my children and those around me? What's, what's the percentage, you think, of a God like that? Well, you know something? Moses, when he received the Ten Commandments, he came down. And in Exodus chapter 20, concerning idols, he's writing about this. He says, and you shall, verse 5, you shall not bow down to them, the idols, or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments Heavy, heavy on mercy and grace and the love of God. Just, yes, but merciful and gracious. And you know what Esther was saying to Xerxes? King, yeah, yeah, you, don't, you don't get this totally, okay? But let me, let, me let, you, let me give you a little Jewish history here, okay? A little lesson. Our leaders blew it. And as a result of that, we are suffering. Oh, king, help me make this thing right. Yes, you judged Haman. Yes, you gave Mordecai the signet ring. Yes, you gave me all of Haman's land and servants and houses and everything. I can't thank you enough. Thank you so much. 
But they mean nothing if you can't help me save my people. There were two times, two in the book of Esther, just two, here and in chapter 4 and verse 4, where Esther loses it, emotionally loses it. And both times it had to do not with her own plight, but with the plight of her people. See, God had changed this woman from the one we met in chapter 1. How does God bring relief? God brings relief many times to his people, and he uses ready people. Someone like Esther, who is ready to go to bring his relief to his people. Ready people are people that God uses to bring relief. But he uses, he uses other people too. There's a very interesting exchange in verse 7. Uh, I don't think it's captured well in the English. I'm not sure. Maybe I'm wrong. You know, I'm going to get to heaven. I'm going to probably find out I'm wrong, what I'm about to tell you. But, yeah, what are you going to do? I'm going to throw it out anyway. Here, here you go. Ready? Verse 7. King Xerxes replied to Queen, uh, to queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, because Haman attacked the Jews, I have given his estate to Esther. This is Xerxes speaking. And they have impaled him on a pole he set up. Eight. Now write another decree in the king's name in behalf of the Jews, as seems best to you. Seal it with the king's signet ring, for no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. Uh, that which is irrevocable can't be changed, but perhaps the outcome could change with another decree. But here's the thing. Here's the thing, all right? Have you ever been kind uh, to a person sacrificed your time and energy and money to help them out. But instead of just saying, thank you so much, um, they ask you for more and more and more. Okay? Just shake. If you're next to the person, don't. don't <laughs> just just kind of do this. All right, I see. I see some blinking going on. All right, very good. What is your reaction when that happens? You get ticked off, right? You, you, you become annoyed. You regret that you, you even started helping them in the first place. I'm just, this is me, okay? I, I, I may be wrong about this. Between verses 7 and 8, I'm wondering if something similar is happening here. The same kind of thing. The king says, look, I took care of Haman. He was over there hanging by the, on the pole there. I gave you his entire estate. Mordecai, you got my signet ring on your finger. You want more? Really? Really you want more? You're coming to me and saying you want more? I wish I had never gotten involved in the first place. Remember who we're dealing with here. This is not a guy who loves people, who cares about anybody else. Now, I may be totally wrong, but this guy has shown a callous disregard for other people. He's chiefly concerned with his own peace of mind. He's concerned with his own security. He's concerned with running his own empire. He has a short fuse, as we have seen a couple of times in this book, famously depicted on other people. So after telling Mordecai and Esther all the good things he had done for them, all of a sudden in verse 8, it shifts. Do you notice it? It's not, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this. It's like, okay, uh, you want to do this? Uh, you do it. You go write another decree as long as it stays within the bounds of what is legal. Why would he do that? Was he saying you know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of done with this. If you want to save your people, sit down, hash out the details yourself. You two do it. Now, remember, remember, Esther's request is not for herself. It's for her people. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. There are a few, there are a few things that are more frust frustrating in our life than when you are with someone who can do something amazing 
and meet a desperate need, especially when it concerns someone you love, uh, someone who has it in their power, in his or her power, to help but just can't be bothered, has got more important things to do, but they have it in their power to help. How rare is it to find someone who will love us enough to do a loving act for those whom we love? Maybe not for us, but for someone who we love. See, that's a very, very rare person. A very rare person indeed. When someone does something wonderful for someone who is important to us, uh, but may not even know the person, or that person may not even be important to them, it shows an enormous amount of care for us. And it turns, you know, and, and it, I think it engenders an enormous amount of gratefulness in us. Even if the person who's helping us out is reluctant at first. When I was a student at Northeastern Bible College uh, many years ago, <laughs> I remember one late Saturday night. It was like it was 11 o'clock, 11.30. It was in that range. And uh, the phone started ringing. We had one phone. It was no, there were no cell phones. There was nothing like that. I know it's hard to believe. But it, it, we, we had one phone on our floor. And so if the phone was ringing, whoever was around would answer it. Now, nobody wanted to answer the phone. Why, did, why don't you want to answer the phone? Is John there? Where's John? Oh, John's down here. You go down and John, hey, John, you here? No, he's not here. He's down in Tony's room. Oh. You go down. So who wants to do this? Nobody wants to do that. So, every, so a lot of times the phone would ring and ring and ring until somebody started screaming, answer the phone, you know, from somebody. It would come, you know, a lot of times from my, my room because I was the RA on that, uh, on that floor. But anyway, it was ringing one night, and uh, uh, finally I went out, and I answered the phone. And um, within 20 seconds, I said, Oi, you know, I mean, uh, why, why did I even answer the phone? Why did <laughs> I was really sorry. On the other end of the phone was a little old lady who had worked in the who worked in the college office, and I knew who she was. Really didn't know her, but I remember often seeing her very, very, very reserved, very shy, almost withdrawn, an introverted little lady. Uh, she had a little gray hair in a bun all the time on the top of her head, dutifully going about her work. And uh, her name was Mrs. Wilson, and I, 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 I could tell that there was something wrong. So you, you know, when you get on the phone, you're hearing somebody, there's something, there's something wrong. She, cause she's, she's a very reserved woman, but she wasn't reserved around that. She was very upset. She was very agitated. I could tell. And she told me this story that her daughter and her grandsons had been stranded at the side of a road on Long Island coming home from a fishing trip. This is 11, 11.30 at night. She wanted to know if there was someone around. Now, Northeastern Bible College is down a block from here. It was down a, it, it's a mile from where we, we stand right now. It used to be in Essex Fells. She wanted to know if there was someone, anyone around, who could possibly go and pick them up. You know, and, and as I listened to her, my shoulders sank, and my eyes rolled to the back of my head, and I felt like saying to her, what, what are you, nuts? Are you, are you kidding me? It's 11 o'clock on a Saturday night. You want someone to drive over the GW Bridge, over the Throgs, and get on the Long Island Distress Way, and out to Suffolk County, and pick up your daughter and your grandsons and, at the middle of the side of a road somewhere? You, you, really? Really? She said she'd pay anything. And I knew that even then, these people who worked at the college, uh, I, I, I happen to have known that some of them, when the money got real tight, they didn't get paid every now and then. And they were making, it, it wasn't a job, it was a ministry. So, you know, I'm hearing this. You know, <laughs> so I go back into my room and I check with my, my buddy, my roommate, Bobby. He said, Bobby, you want to... Go with me on a two-and-a-half-hour drive out to Long Island, Suffolk County. And he said, sure, let's go. Under protest, we got into my car. We went. And, uh, but she was so desperate. 
She was so desperate. We finally got out there, and the daughter was there with the grandsons, and uh, I had this old Chevy Biscayne, which had a trunk the size of a small apartment. I'm telling you, you could, put, you could fit 20 bodies in there if you, wanted, if you had to. And we went, and they had just come, they had all their camping equipment and all that kind of stuff, and they're putting everything in, they're squeezing it. And the last thing, they have these fish that they had caught. And I said, I said, you're not putting the fish in there. She goes, yeah, well, you know what, there's a little corner. I said, you're not putting the fish in the back of the car, all right? And she actually got a little annoyed with me. She got annoyed with me. So we just drove two and a half hours, or, uh, you know, way out in Suffolk County. And, she, and this gal's, you know, she's annoyed at me, which we looked at each other kind of, you know, and saying, oh, gosh. Why, why, why do we do that? Anyway, we made it back to Coldwell, where the lady lived. And the, as the first rays of light were kind of breaking on Sunday morning, I went back to the college. On Monday morning, I was walking through the hallways, and I saw Mrs. Wilson. She saw me. She thanked me again and again and again, like I had just discovered a cure for cancer or something. I mean, it was like, you know, I had done this amazing thing. And whenever she saw me after that, she would always break out into a large smile, and she would always greet me very warmly. I graduated the next year. Years, some years later... I was invited back to the college. I think I was speaking at an event. And I was walking around, and I saw Mrs. Wilson. <clears throat> and I went up to her, and I said, Mrs. Wilson, hey. I, I don't know if you remember me, but she goes, remember you. I will never forget you. And you know what? I don't think she ever did. I'm sure she never did. Because when you find somebody who will love you enough to do a loving act for those whom you love, you never forget them. And she never did. In spite of my great reluctance to help her at that moment. Now, look, I know. Look, small print. I know that there are people who, when you help them, uh, you know, you, and you help those who they love, there are some people who have a tendency to... To latch on to you, right? And, and, and a lot of times it's because of their own emotional bankruptcy. I, I get it. And they could drive you crazy unless you develop, with God's wisdom, boundaries, which I am all for. But I am so glad when God provides people moved by the Holy Spirit and, and, and he brings them along to bring relief to me and bring relief to those whom, whom I love. You know, we often don't answer the bell in situations like that. Because we're human, I think. But God's not like us. Would God, on our behalf, for our sake, answer a prayer uttered for one who neither acknowledges him nor cares for him, his glory, or his kingdom? Would God ever do something like that, do you think? I think he would. And I think he does. I think that when Esther pleaded to the king on behalf of her people who were in danger of destruction, he moved the heart of the king at least enough to care enough for Esther, and now she likes these people, these are her people, and he, at least he didn't put roadblocks in front of them. At least that's the least she, he, he didn't do. But you know what? I have this feeling that, you know what, he wasn't all that interested to do that. But God used this reluctant person. See, God uses ready people to bring his relief. God also uses reluctant people to bring his relief. In fact, God uses all methods and all means to bring relief to his people. Well, they, 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 they quickly, king goes, all right, you do it. You know what? I'm done with this. Uh, you, you do it. So they start preparing the pa paperwork 
that was needed for the Jews to protect themselves by any means. And the edict they drafted used almost the exact same language as the one issued for their destruction, including the killing, if need be, You'll see, you can see in chapter 9, we're not getting into it, we're not on time. The killing, if need be, of women and children and the plundering of, of the attacker's goods. They use the same language. It's kind of like a shock, okay? Just mirrored it around, turned it around the other way. And, uh, but you know what? When, when you look at chapter 9, there were no women and children killed. When, they, when they're doing a tally after this whole the day came, you know, months later, it's eight months down the road, you know what happened? Um, it, it's just a tally of, of the men. And, in fact, it mentions several times in chapters 9 that, you know what, no spoils were taken by the Jewish people. They left them. Who took spoils hundreds of years before and got them in trouble? Oh, yeah, it was Saul. They were determined. You know what, this wasn't about revenge. This wasn't about getting rich. This was about obedience to God's word. They were not the revenge killings. This was self-defense. This was a chance to right a historic wrong. And when you're doing that, you aren't concerned with enriching yourself. And God, whose hand was working in the background all along, protected his people and gave them relief from their enemies. And when it was all over, they had a big party. They had a big celebration. The Jewish celebration of Perdim, or it looks like Purim, Right? We'll say Purim because Purim. Okay. Uh, we'll go with it. what she said. What she, what she said. Uh, it's it set aside as one of the happiest days of the Jewish calendar. Uh, Purim is a double celebration. Because you know what happened? Uh, after the first day, the queen, if you look in chapter 9, the queen said, you know what? There's still people who are offering ferocious resistance. So the king signed another edict that, you know what? They were going to extend it one more day. One more, in, only in Susa, only in the capital. So it, it was extended one more day. But after that, there was a great celebration. A great celebration. And in the Jewish calendar, the year kind of begins and ends around March. When you think about it, it begins with a celebration of Passover, and it ends with a celebration of Purim. It begins with a celebration of God delivered his people from the oppression of Pharaoh in a foreign land, and it ends with a celebration of how God delivered his people from oppression from Haman in his foreign land, in this foreign land. They are bookends of one long story of deliverance. Brian Gregory sees Purim as a, a celebration not only of deliverance from Haman, the oppressor, but really a celebration of the providence of the hidden God who brings all things in time to their proper conclusion. You know, here's a story where everything looked hopeless and all of a sudden it's reversed and it is only in retrospect that you can see the hidden hand of God moving the chess pieces around. Don't you ever look at evil and come to the conclusion, evil's winning? Do you ever... I, I, I mean, who doesn't? Many times. But it all comes around as God is in the shadows protecting and delivering his people from the plans of evil men. You know what Purim does? It helps people cope with the existence of exile. You know what exile has to do with? Exile has to do with disorder. Exile has to do with displacement. Exile has to do with chaos. It's, where, it's, it's a place 
when you're in exile where nothing makes sense. Exile is a time when home is very, very far away. And the world in which you live in is not the world as it should be. See, that's exile. We're exiles. We're exiles, the Bible says, in a strange land. This is not our home. This is not our final destination. There is a better place, a place that Jesus went to prepare for us, he said to his disciples. Folks, listen. For generations, the story of this people who were snatched from the brink of annihilation and, and then were brought to, to hope and, and comfort and, and, and revival it's been, it's been the story that millions of people have clung to, have grabbed onto. A reminder of God's ability to reverse the irreversible. Do you know that European Jews during World War II, you know which book they cherished above all others? It was the book of Esther. In fact, the Nazis were so fearful of its message that anyone caught with a copy of it in the prison camps was immediately executed. But you know what? Every time they took the copy... There's stories of inmates writing by memory new copies of the book of Esther because it, gets, it gave such hope in a place and in a time when evil looked like it was going to win. Folks, I got to tell you, and I, I'd say this in closing, there were so many people where... Uh, they just experience, they're waiting for, the, for something to reverse, and it just never seems to happen. It seems like their lot in life and their situation really is irreversible. And, uh, you know, you look down through, through history, you know, you see the French Calvinists who were martyred by the tens of thousands in the 16th century. You see the Roman emperors throwing Christians to the lions and, and lighting up the arena with their bodies. You see half a million Christians murdered by Sudanese Muslims. Where was the great reversal for them? Where was the great turnaround? Where was, where was the relief for them? And we see when all this evil is pictured in Haman comes against us. It comes against us in the form of cancer and shattered hearts and drunk drivers. And they bring us agony and we pray. And yet there is no last minute reprieve. What then? What then? Where is God then? It is there in that place at that time, for many, many people, that God dies. He dies right before their eyes. I wonder if that's what the disciples were going through. Remember when Jesus was crucified and they were kind of at a real nice, safe space about a half a mile away, you know? And just they're watching the thing that happened and, and, and they're scared out of their wits. And right before them, the man who said he would save Israel was dying a slow, agonizing death right before them and they probably concluded yes God is dying before our eyes I wonder if they thought that their own personal Haman the governor Pilate had won the day what why why did the tables not turn for those people why did they not see relief where is God now yeah I think you know where he is there he is 
He's wrapped up like a mummy in that sepulcher with a big rock and Roman guards in front of it. That's where he is. And yet it is in that tomb that God opens up our new future. Brian, Brian Gregory wrote this. He said, the tables do turn. Maybe not before the gas is turned on uh, or the bomb is detonated. Maybe not before the sword is swung or the atom is split. Maybe not before the life support is turned off or the cross is lifted, but deeper, much deeper still. And the fabric of death that is woven irrevocably into the tapestry of our lives and our cultures and our world. Deep down in the chambers, in the pits, in the ashes, yes, in the tomb itself, there the tables do turn. For the one who went down into the grave came up in glory. The one who was laid to rest emerged in resurrection power. The one who submitted himself to emptiness of the tomb rose again and made the tomb emptied. Folks, God uses all methods and all means at all times and has promised to bring his people relief. He has promised that. Relief will come. You know what? Sometimes it doesn't come before the 13th of the last month of the year. Sometimes it's after but the promise still stands. There is nothing beyond the touch of God or beyond the touch of resurrection. Deep down, deep down, God is working. And he's working quietly, and he's working providentially to bring about his purposes in the ashes of broken lives all around us. And one day, with new bodies and renewed hope, on a new earth, we will stand together and we will experience the ultimate relief and experience beauty for ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of the spirit of heaviness. Isaiah say, said, they will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. God uses all methods. He uses all means of relief. He uses people that are ready. He uses people that are reluctant to bring relief to his people. He used one time, many years ago, a little girl that he plucked from obscurity to bring about relief for a nation. He wants to use you, too, if you will let him.